Welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Welcome to the porch. Um, I'm, my name is Shannon. Um, it's good to see you, especially if this happens to be your first time. We're really glad that you're here checking us out or if you're watching us online. Of course, we love that you are part of today's worship experience. Um, today we are in week four of the series on the book of Exodus, and this is kind of actually a Halloween-ish type message when you think about it, because it, it comes from the ancient Egypt, and there's like this this horrible leader, Pharaoh, he's like a, ty a tyrant, excuse me, and there are these plagues that are going to come over and take over Egypt and just knock it to its knees, and there's all these ancient gods that are being worshipped and, and people are bowing down to, and there's going to be a blood-smeared doorpost that's going to come along. Um, there's this destroying angel that comes and, and just deals out just these divine displays of, of God's judgment. So it's very, very just like full of drama and, and it's kind of fearful and it's full of power and, and all these things. And um, so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7 today is our main text, but I will tell you, as I did last week, if you like to take notes, this is for you. I mean, there's a lot of scripture we're going to uh, look at today. A lot of it we're going to see up on the screen. Some of it I'm just going to reference so you can go and check it out later. Um, because really we're kind of covering about four, almost five chapters here in one message. And I know we all like to, you know, eat lunch and stuff. So I'm going to try and, you know, keep it, you know, in, in that time frame a little bit. So we're going to start in Exodus 7. And then we're going to see uh, just, this is a tremendous story, okay? So starting in verse 1, here we go. Let's, let's get into it. Then the Lord said to Moses, pay close attention to this, which I think is just interesting right there because if God's talking to you, that's kind of something that you want to pay close attention to. But anyway, so he says, pay close attention to this. I will make you seem like God to Pharaoh, which might sound weird to us, but you got to remember, like, they had tons of God, hundreds and hundreds of gods, so this would not seem odd for Pharaoh to go, wow, this Moses guy. Okay, so he says this, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Moses didn't feel very um, confident about being the leader of the people, and he expressed that to God. And so God said, I'm going to let Aaron be your spokesperson because I know you, have, you don't feel good about that. So I'm going to, together, you guys are going to do this. So then he says, tell Aaron everything I command you, which is why there's that funnel from God to Moses to Aaron. Tell Aaron everything I command you, and Aaron must command Pharaoh to let the people of Israel leave his country. But I will make Pharaoh's heart stubborn so I can multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Even then, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you. So I will bring my fist down on Egypt. Then I will rescue my forces, my people, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. When I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So in this uh, first initial conversation that God is having with Moses, and, and it's going to share it with Aaron, and Aaron's got to go and, and say this to Pharaoh, there are these, these series of a really mighty, miraculous acts that tend to be exact, um, called the plagues, as we know them. And they just, just bring Egypt to its knees. I mean, they destroy every aspect of their society, of their culture. Um, uh, like, 
you know, economically, socially, I mean, every, even religiously, like it just brings them to their knees. Like their whole dependence is just rocked by these series of plagues that God brings upon them. And it all happens in verses or chapters like 7 through 11. Now, just a quick review for those that don't know or just to be reminded, these were the 10 plagues that happen in a, in a series of waves. They just keep coming one after the other, after the other, and they all have to do go back to the fact that Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, would not relent. He would not give in, and we're going to talk about more of that in a moment, but here are the plagues. The first one is that water was turned into blood, okay? So the river was turned into blood, but not just the river, not just the source of water, but any standing water, any collected water that was available. If you had a basin of water or a jug of water in your home, it turned to blood as well, okay? That, that's just miraculous. It's, it's, it's creepy. It's just like there's so many things about it. It's obviously unhygienic. Like you don't want to have, you don't want to be drinking that. It's like it was just horrible, the first plague. And then there were frogs, which you might go, oh, cute frogs. But no, I found out, thank you, Casey Van Nortwijk, is that a whole lot of frogs is called an army, an army of frogs, Again, you go, oh, that's really cute. But no, like there were frogs everywhere in everything all over the place. And frogs kind of are cute, but then frogs also do things like, like pee on your arm, you know, like we all know, we know, okay. Not the pee part, but last night Mallory opened up the freezer and she swore that a frog jumped out of the ice maker. We don't know. We think it was just on the door. We're not sure, but we're going to redo our ice later. Um, so, but there's like an army of frogs. Then comes these gnats or lice. They kind of get interchanged in, depending on the version you're reading. But regardless, there are these tiny little bugs that are very, very, very annoying. Okay, think St. Simon's with a really itchy head. Okay, so that's kind of how that is. This was horrible, horrible. Then flies come, Okay. Also, just we cannot really grasp this. If you are in a community group um, this coming week and you talk about this, uh, you got a really cool PDF handout thing that's coming that comes in the resources section um, that you'll be able to check out and read because it goes into really great detail about all this stuff. All right, so then, so we've got these little you know, bugs, right? And now comes diseased livestock, which again, this just cripples their society. It cripples like everything, like they just are diseased, then boils, okay, skin boils, skin eruptions pop up on, on living creatures, okay, and then hail rains down from heaven, and when it hits the ground, it turns to fire, all this is going on, this wave after wave, then locusts come, and they wipe out all the crops, wave after wave after wave, then darkness comes for three days, this is a place without electricity, darkness, three days. And then the tenth plague, the final plague, the one that finally brings Pharaoh to a place where he goes, okay, I'll let the people go, is the death of the firstborn sons. All the firstborn sons. Which when you think about it, and this is what I've done, and, and, but like when we think about that, we think children and babies, but it's, no, the firstborn son of a family, so it could have been grandpa or dad. Or uncle. But if you were the firstborn male of your family, this tenth plague knocked you out. It didn't knock you out. It killed you. 
Next week, we're going to actually talk much more in depth about that particular plague and how God brought redemption and salvation through it. We'll talk about the Passover and we'll celebrate communion. Do you have questions you want to ask God? Like, do you have a little list of, like, things you want to ask him? Like, one day? And when we have the opportunity, we probably won't really even matter, right? One of mine is, what did Jesus bend down and write in the dirt? That's one of my questions. Uh, Another question I have, and I think I'm starting to get the answer just in working on this message, but one of the questions that I've had since I was younger was, why 10 plagues? Why did it take 10 plagues? Like, if God is God, he is, and and like, why did it take 10 plagues for, why didn't he just start with, I mean, it sounds horrible, but you get the point, why didn't he just start with the one that was so horrible, the firstborn dying in Egypt? So that, that Pharaoh would relent and let the people go so they could go. Like, why go through all of those steps? Well, there is, in fact, a reason for it. There's a few that we find, even here in, in Exodus chapter 7, that explains why. Because God is revealing himself. God is revealing himself, not just to the Israelites, but to the Egyptians, that he's revealing himself to the world. He's revealing himself to humanity. And he does this for a few reasons. First and foremost, he does this so that people will know that he is the Lord. So that people will know that God is the Lord. And you kind of go, well, duh. But hundreds and hundreds of gods these people had. There was a God for everything. There was, God keeps saying, I want them to know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. We see it in verse 5. You see it in verse 17 of chapter 7. Over in in chapter 8, verse 22, you find him declaring this. In chapter 10, verse 2, he's saying, I want people to know that I am the Lord. He wants people to see the power of God, to know that he is the one, because there are so many gods. There's There's another reason why 10 plagues. The number 10 is very significant. If you look at biblical numerology, it's a very significant number. What 10 means is it represents the fullness of a quantity. Like if you say, man, there were 10 whatever. That meant like there was a bunch. It meant that you couldn't really say more. You know, it's kind of like 10. So 10 plagues is in many ways saying this is the full expression of it. Like 10 plagues is like you've been plagued. Like that's, that's all the plagues you could ever deal with. In the same way that there are 10 commandments and it represents the fullness of God's law, the fullness of God's moral law, the plagues represent the fullness of God's judgment. Interestingly, by the time we get to the third plague, the one of lice and gnats, Pharaoh's magicians are actually starting to do what it is. that They're like going, hey, we, we believe that this God is the Lord. While we we're recognizing that this God is actually bigger than, than the other gods, this is what they say in chapter 8, verse 19. They say, this is Pharaoh's magicians, the people that do the things that kind of awe the people, right? They say, they look around at, at this now third plague, and they go, this is the finger of God. Like, this, this is the work of God. This is God's doing. They, they tell this to Pharaoh. They exclaim it to Pharaoh. And yet, we read that, that Pharaoh's heart is still unchanged. There's a hardness in his heart. We're going to talk much more about that in a minute. 
When the seventh plague of the hail that rains down from heaven and then is fire once it hits the ground, when the hail comes along, <laughs> some of the Egyptians, um, of the, the ones that are kind of like spokespeople, you know, Pharaoh's top people, they are actually going, hey, we, we should probably heed whatever we're hearing. In, in chapter 9, verse 20, it says that some of Pharaoh's officials were afraid because of what the Lord had said. He hadn't done it yet, but they were afraid because of what he had said. So they're starting to believe that what is being communicated to them from God is going to happen, which is part of the purpose so that they would know that he is the Lord, that he is the one. This is what they say in verse 20. Some of, did I already read this? Oh, some of Pharaoh's officials were afraid because of what the Lord had said. They quickly brought their servants and livestock in from the fields because they were told this is about to happen. Hail's going to rain down. It's going to hurt. It's going to destroy. It could kill. They would bring them in. So they're starting to do exactly what it is that God desires for them to do so that they would know he is Lord. There's another reason, another goal, if you will, of why God is revealing himself this way. And it's, they all kind of flow together. But it's so that they will know that there is no one like him. There is no one like God. I really cannot reiterate enough that there are so many gods in this culture. There are so many gods in this Egyptian culture. There is a God for everything. Everything. And kind of the big ones are, that, guess what? There's a God of the river. So one of the plagues is like, oh, I'll you think there's a God of this river? You think you're the God of the river? Let me show you who is really the Lord of this. And so he turns it to blood. And what does that do to those who are faithful worshipers of the river God when suddenly it's turned to blood and they can't do anything about it? Or it's challenged them. I mean, he's, God is revealing himself. There is no one like him. There was, there was a God that they had one for every aspect. So there was a God of the sun. So what does God do? He makes it dark. They believed that there was a, a God of crops. So what does he do? He mows it down with locusts. He, he does all of these things that, that they had a, a livestock God. I don't know, like an FFA, like he wore a, like a blue corduroy jacket. I'm not sure. But like, just took him out. Like, no, I am the God. There is no one like God. There's no one like God. And so he's showing this over and over again. Listen to how God announces this in chapter 9, verse 16. He says, I have spared you for a purpose, right? So he didn't just come and just take everybody out. He spared them for a purpose to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. Now, when we hear fame, we think ego. We think, hey, everybody, you know, look at me, you know, love me, all this. Yes, that's kind of what God is saying but in a much different way. He wants us to recognize who he is, to recognize that he is maker because he loves us. Not just to get our attention, not to get our applause, but because of love. And so what God is doing here when he's like, there is no other God but me, he is destroying this religious pluralism that is going on in Egypt, and it's going on right now in our lives. Now, whether you know it or not, whether you know what pluralism is or not, you, you've, you've seen it, and you might practice it. It's this idea of, I can do a lot of other things. 
See, it wasn't enough for God for people to go, hey, I really like my river God, but, I'm, but I'll check out this, this God of the Israelites as well. I'll check out Moses' God. God's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. You know, I love the sun. It's wonderful. I'm going to keep my sun God, you know, routine of worshiping and all that stuff, but I'll, I'll do the Moses God thing. No, he, no, there's no connection. You cannot have both. You can't have both. That's, that's this whole plurality, that pluralism that's going on. More than one. You can't have it. You can't have it. Which means, like, in our time, in our, you know, our, so maybe we're not worshiping rivers and suns, but maybe we're going, you know, I'm going to live my truth. I know you have your truth, God, but I'm going to kind of have a, I'm going to have my truth over here. Can I have both? No, you can't. Our truth needs to align with God's truth. Otherwise, it's not truth. This is what we need to do. We can't go, well, I'm going to have my crystals or my totem pole or my golden calf or whatever it is, and also God. There's no. He's, he's taking this out. He's destroying this. There's no other God but him. And I'm really stressing that because I really do wonder how many of us struggle with this. I mean, if we were really, really to, to, to be honest and look at our lives and go, our do, is there a plurality going on in my life and the way I worship and, and how I view the world and what's important and what's, like, is there, is there something that I need to address and, and remove? There's no other God but him. And then the third reason, it's very similar to the others, that, but I want to touch on it again, is that God, he does these plagues, these ten plagues in phases, in waves, because he wants people to know his name. He wants it to be proclaimed in all the earth. No other name. No other name. And, and, and stop and just think about this for a moment. It works. I mean, we're talking about his name and, and who he is and his power and his glory and his ability and all that he's done in, about this particular event in Exodus millennia later, thousands of years later, we are talking about it and we're declaring that he is God. So why does, okay, so if, if God is God, if there was no one like him, if we are declaring that he is God, if we see through the plagues as just one example of how there is no one greater than him, if we see this, if we recognize this, why does the world in, in Scripture, in Egypt... Pharaoh, why do we today, why do we refuse to submit? Why do we refuse to, to submit to the Lord and, and instead just continue to rebel, to, to not listen to what he says? Why do we do this? It's, it's the same reason that Pharaoh watched his nation be destroyed all around him, and yet he wouldn't submit. There is a hardness of his heart. And so you might, from a, from a spectator position, go, man, what a dummy. I mean, he's in charge, and, and the country is just being just decimated, and yet he won't do what Moses is saying God has told him to do? Why wouldn't he do that? But, but make it, like, look at yourself for a moment. Look at your life for a moment, and think about the times that like your world is just being decimated. It's like crumbling around you, and yet you refuse to submit to the Lordship. And you continue to rebel. 
and you find that there's a hardness in your heart, a hardness in your heart to the point that when the word of God is declared, when, when worship, when God's name is being lifted up in worship, when prayers are being spoken, it's like bouncing off of you because of a hardness of your heart. So we shouldn't be so quick to point out how dumb Pharaoh is. I think a lot of us know what it's like to have a hard heart. In Exodus chapter 10, well, even before that, like this whole hard heart thing, it's so important to the story. It comes up 14 times from chapter 7 to chapter 11. 14 times we hear about his heart being hardened. Either it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart or that God allowed his heart to be hardened. A hard heart. And in verse 7 of chapter 10, it says that Pharaoh's officials, now they came to him. So the state of Egypt, it's crumbling, it's, it's all around, and, and to the amazement of his servants, they come to him and they say, they appeal to him, how long will you let this man, talking about Moses, how long will you let him hold us hostage? How long will you do this? Let the men go worship. Let Moses and Aaron go. Let them go worship the Lord their God. But don't you realize that Egypt lies in ruins? So his own people are begging Pharaoh to just let the Israelites go as, as they're, just, they're just being wrecked by this plague, by the plagues. But he won't relent. He keeps refusing. He's got a hard heart. And this is really best described for us, staying in chapter 10 at verse 3. It says, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and says, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to submit to me? How long will you refuse to submit to me? Let my people go so they can worship me. So here's Pharaoh, and he's refusing to humble himself. He's refusing to submit himself before the Lord. And what does he do? He rationalizes, he barters, he lies. But he never repents. He never lets go. Actually, what he does is no matter how much of God's glory he might see in the plagues, his heart remains unchanged, and it's all because of this effect of sin and rebellion in his life that's just hardening his heart. And listen, Pharaoh didn't care that the Israelites had a God. He wasn't jealous of that. He didn't care. What really got him was that this, this God was now telling him what to do. Pride. Pride. There are a few times when it looks like Pharaoh's going to relent, <laughs> but he does what I think a lot of us can relate to. He wants to do it on his own terms. Um, in chapter 8, verse 25, he tells Moses, okay, um, you can go worship, but you've got to stay in Egypt. But that wasn't the deal. God said, I want them, let them go into the wilderness to worship. But he's trying to do it on his terms, right? In, in uh, chapter 10, verse 8, he says, okay, you can go to worship, but not all of you can go, just some of you can go. And that wasn't the deal. God said, let my people Israel go into the wilderness to worship. So he's trying to do this on his terms every time. In verse 24 of chapter 10, Pharaoh says, okay, you can go worship, but leave all your livestock and animals behind. 
because now, now you got something to come back to. But that wasn't the deal. It was let them all go, let everything go. This is a hard heart. This is what a hard heart does. This is what a rebellious heart does. This is what a heart that does not truly recognize God to be God does over and over again. It says, okay, I'm going to obey on my terms, which is no obedience at all. It's not. Obeying on your terms is, is no obedience at all. We need to hear that. Because I don't know what describes non-believers and believers more than that right there. Let me obey on my terms. It's like no matter how many times God reveals his glory, reveals his justice, reveals his judgment, reveals his power to the world, we can still be hardened in our heart. And, and we just tend towards disbelief and disobedience is what we do. And God, he does all of this. All of this is about saving his people. Saving the ones that recognize him as God. This is what this is all about. This is not about, I want to pick on Egypt. This is not about, I hate Pharaoh. This is about God desiring to save the people that he loves. He wants, what he wants to do with the people that are, that are trapped in slavery and bondage in Egypt, his people, is he wants to bring them to life. He wants to revive them. He wants to renew them. It's what we've been talking about for several weeks now. And we see this here. This is what he's wanting to do. And he desires to do the same exact thing in, in us. He doesn't want us to remain. He doesn't want us to be there worshiping different things, trying to obey on our terms, having a hard heart, not really like, no, he wants us to come out of slavery, understand, declare that he is God. There is no one like him, that his fame would travel throughout the earth, that we would have to speak about it everywhere we went because he is so amazing that he has saved us and brought us to life. It's what he wants to do for us. And this happens through Jesus. This happens through Jesus. We live on this side of the story. We are his beloved. We are the ones that he has given himself for. And he overpowers every false God, every possible false God that you and I could prop up. Every human constructed religion or idea or, or whatever that we think it could have any kind of power or any kind of truth behind it. Listen to this. New Testament explanation of how God desires to make us alive. I mean, listen to this in light of what we've just been reading in Exodus, okay? In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, it says, You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, Right? Oh, can we, can we stay in Egypt? Can I follow you, God, but can I stay in Egypt? Can we, can we go out to worship you, God, but we'll, we'll keep a little bit over here with you? No, you can't. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. <laughs> For he forgave all your sins. 
There was the disconnect. The disconnect was our sin. But now Christ has come to pay for this sin. He's given himself for this sin. He canceled, I love this, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. All those little gods, false gods, things that we think are important. And I love this. This is exactly what happened in Exodus. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Who's them? The spiritual rulers and authorities. Those things that think they're, they're God. Those, those forces that are trying to get us to take our eyes off of God and put him on something else and worship something else. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I mean, he has, he has rid the, the, the demonic kingdom of its power to condemn us. He's done this through the cross. Ephesians chapter 1, we hear the same declaration of who our God is and what he has done for us in verse 19 through 21. Paul writes, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is what's being displayed in Exodus. It's being now preached over us. This is the same, it says here, this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Whew. Our God. Our God is Lord. There is no one like him. There is no God like our God. He has proven himself as more powerful than every worldly power. And he's done this by ascending to heaven and sitting on the highest throne. There is none higher. And when you think about the plagues, even in their fullness as the number 10 represents, the mighty sign of, of Jesus' death and resurrection is more proof of God's power and uniqueness than all those plagues combined. And yet, like the plagues of Egypt, just like those plagues, people can look at, at the cross. People can hear the message of Jesus Christ. They can, and they can come up with a thousand different explanations for what it really is and why it doesn't really matter. The only difference between those who look at the cross and see nothing worthwhile and those who look at the cross and see that their life has been saved is the grace of God. That's the only difference. Is us recognizing his grace working in our lives. He doesn't withhold his grace. He reveals his grace for us to see. So I would say that the, the miraculous signs are very clear. They're clear here in Exodus. I love these two passages here in the New Testament, and there are so many more. The signs are clear. He is God. He is Lord. And Jesus is salvation. He is the only way. And you and I are invited into this life of redemption. We're invited into this life that's filled and empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. And what he wants to do is he wants to free us for joyful obedience. He wants to free us for joyful obedience. You go, well, that doesn't, those words don't go together. They do. 
He wants us to be his people living in freedom. Freedom, real freedom, true freedom. Not the freedom we think we want or that we think we need. No, true freedom. Where you're not burdened by sin, you're not burdened by shame, you're not weighed down by the, the, the shackles and the chains and, and, and the bondage of, of your past. No, to live into his freedom where all of that is removed. He wants to revive us. He wants to renew us. He wants to give us life. And so I would just, let's not be rebellious. Let's not refuse. Let's not let our heart become any harder than it already is, if it is. Let today, let this moment be a moment where we go, I'm going to, I'm surrendering my hard heart to you, God. I don't even, I don't even want to do that, but I realize that you are God. I want to surrender this hard heart, and I don't even, I don't even like the fact that I'm saying it. Friends, that is the beginning of him speaking grace into your life where perhaps you didn't see it before. Let today be the day we surrender so that God can work in our lives in the only way that he can do and nothing else can even compare to that. As the band comes back out and we go to a time of prayer and response and worship, I just want to encourage you Oh my goodness, see, see the reality is, and I was, I was thinking of this, and I might have alluded to it while we were talking, but it's like, here, here's what happens, here's what a hard heart does, here's, here's exactly what it does, is it, is it here's God's word, here's it proclaimed, it, it, it opens it up and even reads it, a hard heart can read God's word, a hard heart can hear God's word, a hard heart can be in worship and, and hear voices singing, and it can be a beautiful time, a hard heart can hear someone pray, Goodness, a hard heart could even pretend to pray. Like, I mean, could actually talk to God, but but it not affect us. It not speak to us. It not bring us to a place where we want to surrender. And that that might very well be some of us here today. (laughs) So ironically, I'm going to (laughs) pray for the hard heart whether it's yours or whether it's someone you know, someone that you love, someone that you're thinking about, you're like, oh my goodness, I, I wish they would open their eyes and see. Let's pray. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would pierce our hearts, our hard hearts, For the ones that are full of anger, that are ones that are full of resentment, that the ones that feel uh, have been abused, the ones that, have, that feel as if they've been ignored. God, for the hard hearts that feel as if their prayers have not been answered, feel that their joy has been stolen from them. And I pray that your, your grace and your mercy and your immense love would pierce the hard hearts this morning. God, for the hearts that used to used to love you God for the hearts that used to beat for you and now 
they don't. God, would you, would you pierce the hard hearts today by your Holy Spirit? Lord, would today be the beginning day of, of seeking your face, of, of apologizing, of confessing, of repenting, of believing again? Or would you pierce hard hearts? You desire to show us who you are, to love us, to revive us, to renew us, to restore us. And I pray that that begins now by, in the name of Jesus. I pray that that begins now, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Not by my words or not by anything we're doing right now, but because your Holy Spirit is ministering to your people right now piercing through the hardest of hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray, we sing, we rejoice. Amen.